Welcome to Nearly Numinous. Today we're going to be talking about a show called The Hundred and some of the themes of spirituality and religion we see in the show. Obviously, some of the things we'll be discussing today will make more sense if you've seen the show, but we're hoping those who haven't seen The Hundred will still get something out of our discussion today. And also, needless to say, there's going to be some spoilers. So today we're only going to be focusing on season one, but we're also going to be splitting season one into two episodes, just so we don't shove a lot of information in your face at one time. So first we're just going to, you know, give you a little bit of an introduction about the show and give you our thoughts on it, and we're going to talk about themes of apocalypticism. Next time we're going to talk about a little bit of eco-spirituality. Just a dash. Just a little dash, a little sprinkle. A little sprinkle. <laughs> a little salt bay. And we split that part up into three sections, each focusing on a different community in the show to make it simpler for our listeners. And within each section, we'll look at the different ways religion and spirituality manifest in the show's communities. All right, to give some listeners like a little um, pre-flight warning... We wrote the script for this in February and March. Uh, it is now June. <laughs> we had we had a couple of failed recording sessions because internet hates us. Um, and then I moved across the country and forgot everything that happened pre-living across the country. Do, do you guys do that ever? Like, I feel like there's little, like, cuts in your life where like when you make that big transition everything that happened prior you're like oh right I have all these other responsibilities my life didn't just stop there so anyway I get what you mean but it's never happened to me that's kind of (laughs) concerning well I've moved a lot in my life that's true pick up dust off forget about everything in the past um you guys are lucky you still made the cut (laughs) oh Oh, thanks oh thanks thanks so much (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Um, but no, that's that's the listener's pre-flight warning. Um, we're going <laughs> to... Pre-flight. Yeah, pre-flight warning. It makes sense. But we we might fumble our way through a few points, um, but hopefully it's still a good conversation. <laughs> okay, so what is the hundred? Um, which I said it the hundred because Jacqueline told me if I said the 100, she would beat me up. Oh, yes, <laughs> from the pacifist. No, I'm definitely gonna gonna mess up on the name. I've always in my head called it the 100. So, okay, the 100. Yeah, me yeah. too. I'll have to practice that. If you don't know, it's styled with the numbers. So you could like, upon first view, you could say either the 100 or the 100. But I think officially, it's called the 100. What weird semantics. Anyway. So what is the 100 or the 100, whatever you would refer to it as? So the 100 is an American post-apocalyptic science fiction drama that first aired on the CW in 2014. Um, Side tangent, the CW puts out the best shows hands down. Um, Their best worst shows. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Like, yeah, I only watch bad TV, um, so I only (laughs) understand bad television shows. And the CW puts out the best of them, so 
Totally. (laughs) As the show starts, we learn that a nuclear apocalypse made the Earth supposedly inhospitable. Humans have lived in space for 97 years, building their own culture, families, laws, and sense of spirituality. However, the purpose of the scientists on the Ark is to determine when and if the Earth will become hospitable again, and to ultimately return the Ark citizens to the ground. Our main character is Clark Griffin, who has been sent to jail, or as they call it in the show, lockup. I don't understand why they needed to call it something different. No, they really could have just called it jail. (laughs) Yeah. She's been sent to lockup because she knows a secret discovered by her father, who was an engineer. Her father discovered that the Ark was running out of air ahead of schedule, and that the Ark, which is, to clarify, the space station that they live on, would need to send people to the ground earlier, or quote-unquote call people, to make the air last longer. Um, Just to clarify for our listeners, calling people means, like, you know, removing them. Sending them out to space. From the equation. Yeah, um, that's a nice way of putting it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and in the show, don't they call, like, sending people just out into this, into space, floating them? Yeah. 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 Which okay. sounds lovely. Yeah. I, I love yeah, it sounds really nice. in a river, in a lake. Yeah. Yeah. The number one, like, insult is, like, go float yourself throughout the show. And it's really funny when they, like, get to Earth and they're telling the, the non, well, I don't yeah. want to spoil it, but the non-space humans to go float themselves. And they're like, what? Yeah, it makes no it's sense. It's okay. Otherwise. I think you can spoil it. <laughs> True enough. The whole, this whole episode is going to be spoilers. Yeah. This is your second warning. If you don't want spoilers, dip out now. We won't be mad. Um, just go listen to one of our other episodes. They're also good. I will be mad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So getting back to Clark and her father. So her father found out the secret, uh, but he believed that the people of the Ark deserved to know the truth so that they could be part of any decisions that were being made about the future of the Ark. What a commie, eh? What a terrible person. (laughs) (laughs) But the leaders of the Ark disagreed and floated him, aka, like we said, sent him out of the spaceship without a space suit. Therefore, no oxygen. This was the standard punishment for any crime, big or small, except for those under 18 who would go into lockup until they turn 19 and then they're put on trial. Um, So that's good. They don't kill children. Yeah, they're great I guess people. if that's where your line is. Um. It's really unclear, like, <laughs> what going on trial means and how many how many people actually, like, pass the trial. Uh, but, you know, that... I don't know. Kind of weird. Maybe they yeah. expand on it in the books. Oh, right. The show's based on books, that's by the true. way. Huh, I should actually read those. Yeah, they really don't show any examples of it in um, the, the no. show, though. Well, because obviously, like... The kids are in lockup for, like, a day before they get sent down to... Okay, sorry. In the TV episode, we see a day of them in lockup. Yeah, yeah. it's really unclear because... Okay, so um, Clark is the main character. We meet Clark at the beginning of the first episode. She's in lockup. And it's really unclear how long she's been in there because the show opens with showing her drawings that she's done all over this room she's in and it clearly would have taken a lot of time but it kind of also feels like it's only been one day so it's just really like the timeline's really unclear of how long she's been there and how long everybody else has been in lockup i don't know but no i did i also found that super Mm. unclear because it almost makes you feel like it has only been like a week or two that she's maybe been in there but like 
it definitely seems like more. I would say like a, a year. A year. Well, like they did, they did have some sort of classes and stuff to like they, they had earth skills. They learned some some things. I think that's when they were all in lockup already. I think. Yeah. So that, oh, I thought that was like regular. Like, like everybody all, got earth skills. Like regular school. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I have to read the book, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. Yes. So, so Clark is in lockup, and since floating, her dad didn't actually solve the oxygen problem. The leaders of the Ark decided to send um, the juvenile delinquents, so everybody in lockup who's under 18, and there was 100 of them, to go to Earth secretly to see if it is survivable. So it's really unclear how they managed to send 100 kids like in a smaller spaceship without other people noticing, because there were windows on the larger spaceship so i'm not really sure how it was actually well people noticed yeah because raven noticed but nobody else like really noticed i think they were just saying like oh what did they say like they were just discarding something else yeah um and and they they didn't realize it was the kids yeah and then they also wouldn't let any visitors go visit the kids Mm. and they said it was because there was like an outbreak and they were in quarantine right and then raven was like ah i don't think so (laughs) Because you'd have to do these things for it to be in quarantine, and you didn't. Mm -hmm. Raven was, or was training to be an engineer on the on the Ark. By the way, yeah, she's very smart, and is yeah, she's a very main character throughout the throughout the show because she just like solves all the problems, and she's super cool. Yeah, she really is. So anyway, a bunch of kids who are already pissed off by the Ark system of governance get sent to Earth with limited supplies, little guidance, and no idea why they are sent there. So not only has the Ark floated some of their parents for small things like stealing cold medicine, but now they sent the kids to the ground knowing they could die from the radiation. So the 100 kids are both really excited to be on the ground because they've always dreamed of going to the ground, but also really, really pissed off. I would be too. Yeah, exactly right. Like, I don't know. And they have like these these uh, wristbands and they don't know why they have the wristbands. And I don't know, it's just like, that would be really weird to, because they essentially like, they wake up. Do they wake up or the show kind of shows it like they wake up in, in the capsule that sends them down to earth. Do, do you think they were actually escorted? Were they what? Were they like escorted onto the spaceship or because the, the show just kind of like starts it off as like they're already there. That's a or good question. I don't remember. Them. But I'm just thinking, like, that would be really scary to wake up, like, in this, like, this, this spaceship with, like, this wristband suddenly on their arm and, like, not know why. But maybe that's just, like, all... Honestly, um, that whole experience is scary, though. Like, I don't yeah. think that's where it starts or ends. <laughs> <laughs> True. So, anyway, once the kids reach the ground, the Ark is monitoring them through these fancy wristbands to see if they are dying from radiation and to keep working on the oxygen. Oh, and and the Ark keeps working on the oxygen problem and seeing if they will need to call more people. So, the 100 kids, they slip into anarchy until they realize that they need to bond together because, surprise, they're not the only humans on the Earth. The other people on the Earth, who we primarily experience as the other in this season are under are understandably freaking out because there are intruders who have guns and can make bombs and who keep doing things like accidentally lighting 
their village is on fire. So they're quite scared. And so that they, they get quite violent towards the 100. Mm-hmm. And these, uh, these people that we experience as the other category in the show uh, are eventually called the grounders because, you know, they come from the ground. And the 100, which uh, are also kind of deemed like the sky people, like Jacqueline said, they keep, you know, they're kind of, in a sense, intruders on the grounders' land. They come from the sky after years and years of not being there. They've got strange technology that they can possibly use to hurt people, and they're basically encroaching on land and resources. I think it's really interesting, too, that um, this is like a thinly veiled metaphor for, like, colonialism. Mm -hmm. Because, obviously, like, the grounders are are seen as people who have, like, no technology. Like, how are they surviving? You know, they're savage because they're attacking them. How dare they? Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, I've only gotten to, like, halfway through season two, so, like, I don't know how it plays out too far, but... You know, I, I feel like they slowly start to figure out, like, oh, no, you're not, like, idiots, I guess. <laughs> I don't know how to summarize that better, but, mm-hmm. yeah. I I don't like that, because at the beginning, like, if you've only ever watched the first season, you're like, well, obviously, like, these kids know better than these other people. <laughs> it's like, eh, a little, a little problematic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And colonialism is something that we will talk about a lot, especially in the second season, but it's definitely worth noting in this one as well, because the grounders and the sky people are pitted against each other, where, you know, like, the sky people are supposedly more cultured and, you know, have better technology and see themselves as in the right, and then the grounders, from the sky people's point of view, are like like uh like Steph said savage and uncultured and violent as well so that that metaphor for colonialism that you see throughout the show and even in the first season is really really interesting um before we move on from um you know the explanation of plot I have one question how do you think Okay, so we we didn't mention this yet, but you're only allowed to have one child. Mm. Um, that's like a key plot point because one of the hundred that gets sent down was a second child, and that's why she was in lockup. Um, so they're only allowed to have one child. They they don't talk about how they manage that. Mm. So my question is, how how do they? Do you mean like? Do they have birth control or... Yeah, like, okay, so here's the thing. All right, so think about it this way. When you're a teenager, you know, I'll just let you fill in the blanks. (laughs) So if they didn't have some sort of birth control, they'd have teenagers running rampant and having kids. Um, But they have limited resources. So it's not like they just have, like, birth control at the ready. Because I can understand that maybe if you've had your one child, then it's like they go through a surgical process. And I think that they would have like the resources for that. Right. But before you have your one child (laughs) or do you like not plan and just it happens? 
Because then there'd be a lot more 16-year-olds running around with kids. Maybe. Well, I don't know. <laughs> this is a major concern and plot hole for me for this first season, especially. is like you have all these teens on Earth, like, in a state of anarchy. They're all sleeping together, and somehow they don't become pregnant. Like, wouldn't that be a problem? Like, shouldn't we be concerned about these people that were just sent to Earth? having babies not probably knowing how to take care of them and like in a really insecure situation of like oh maybe maybe there will be effects on these potential new infants due to radiation and why aren't we concerned about that um i don't know it just concerning to me i guess they thought they were gonna die yeah which is really reassuring (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally My theory, though, is that everybody who's got a uterus has an implant. Oh, yeah? So, like, rather than, you know, taking pills or using condoms, my theory is everybody's got an IUD. Um, Because, like you said, there's not as many resources probably as you'd expect, especially because they're on an arc, an isolated spaceship in the sky. Um, They're not going to have, like access to building condoms or you know pills for everybody Mm. especially because i think there's thousands of people on the ship i think it might be easier to just do like a simple one and done iud that's convincing (laughs) i don't know i think they do address it yeah right like okay yeah that's true go for a few you know yeah. Anyway, what is any? That's a total side tangent. Well, something that bothers me is the fact that it's apparently only been ninety-seven years since they were last on the ground, which actually isn't that much time. No, I think like it's one and a half generations. Yeah, I think it's too short of time for the grounders to be completely oblivious about technology. For example. Um, yeah, yeah. Unless there's one thing though that I could see fitting into this and that's if the lifespan was shorter for a grounder Mm. which i could see as plausible right because like they are Mm. battling different elements that like you know um because if they're like kind of a pre-technology type of human being then pre-technology human beings had shorter lifespans so like Mm -hmm. if you're playing off of that right that being said though they also develop new languages and like regardless of how long your life is why would people as soon as the bombs fell and all that start you know speaking differently Mm -hmm. yeah like i could see differences in like slang and certain words but like not the entire language right yeah unless it was a survival mechanism right because the mountain people this is getting into season two but the mountain people seem to speak English. English, right. So then maybe so that the founders had to do a different language to like as a protection mechanism. Right, it's kind of like as a code. It's very unclear also of like, so it said at one point that um, the fighters know English and it's kind of unclear to me like why they would need to know English because everybody else speaks this other language um, and really only the mountain people know English. And so what's the purpose? Like they don't communicate with the mountain people at all like the grounders don't mm-hmm. and so why would they even need to learn english it's very convenient obviously because Read when the signs. sky people come oh yeah that's true reading signs yeah i could also see like from like a tiered system the fighters would be considered and like warriors they're typically mm-hmm. i mean historically they've been considered like the high class right 
Mm-hmm. So even just from like a hierarchical system, like the higher class is usually more educated. Mm-hmm. So I wonder even if it's just like the fighters had to learn more things because they were part of this like more elite class. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is all projection. I feel like yeah. we should keep going and actually get to the whole point. Well, I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna say like aside from all the reasons we can come up with it, I think it was originally just because the author tried to find a way to, you know, other and exoticize the grounders. Mm-hmm kind of like separate them from the sky people make them more like we keep coming back to this word like quote-unquote savage Mm -hmm. um coming from like a sort of primitive sort of language um and uh distance them from you know the heightened culture of the people from before the bombs and the sky people i think that's probably why Mm. do you guys think that there's this is a critique on colonialism and othering or do you think that this is a blind someone writing and othering without like the intention of critiquing it i think that especially this is a spoiler even for this episode but in season two when we meet the mountain the mountain people there's very much like they are the high culture very much so like even more than the sky people like they keep all of the art from the world previously and it's it's this kind of like really lifting ourselves we are sophisticated because we have this culture but then it's actually shown how how i I would use the word barbaric the the mountain people are just because the things that they do to the grounders are just horrendous Mm -hmm. um and so i think i think it is a critique on colonialism and just this idea of high culture and sophistication that um yeah that like west like westerners historically have had um so maybe not totally in this season yet like i would say a little bit but i think it it comes into play even more in season two i see what you're saying for sure because you're right, yeah, like, in season one, it's really hard to see. Season two, you, it's a bit more understandable, especially because Clark forms, like, a relationship with, um... Mm. Uh, Alexa? Anya? Anya, yeah. But to the point where, like, you actually start to see, like, empathy happening between the two of them. hmm Yeah. Yeah. Can I just, like, say this before I move on? And that i had such a hard time getting into this show because the characters just bothered me so much like they were all terrible i was just annoyed by all of them um so yeah there's there's a number of them especially in the first season that are just terrible like murphy and bellamy you're just like oh my gosh like i could could not deal with them clark for the first like two episodes i was like you are the worst human being alive like everything you say is just the most frustrating and annoying thing um I grew to like her a lot more later on but like I think I messaged you guys and I was like does she get better please tell me she gets better <laughs> she's I can't very watch impulsive <laughs> uh, throughout the entire series I just uh, sometimes her impulsive decisions I just couldn't like why are you doing that Clark like is that necessary is that the best decision did you think this through no you didn't <laughs> like yeah um, it's very CW, though. Like, the characters, their personality traits are very heightened to the extreme. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And people who you might not like are, like, very unlikable. And people who you might like are pretty likable. So yeah. that's that's very par for the course for writing yeah, for CW, fair. I think. 
All right. So let's talk about some of the themes now that we saw that actually relate to our podcast um, instead of just <laughs> talking about this TV show for the next hour. <laughs> so the first theme that I think we want to highlight is apocalypticism. So this is the most glaringly obvious theme in the show. It's an, it's an apocalyptic show. Apocalypticism is super, super intrinsically tied to almost every single religion. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen a religion that doesn't have apocalypticism in it to some extent. Apocalypticism is from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means an uncovering. So it's like a disclosure or revelation of knowledge. So when you hear the word apocalypse, you may think of the Christian apocalypse that is presented in the mainstream. In the American evangelic tradition, this is portrayed as a literal event perhaps with a rupture in which faithful Christians are taken up to heaven before various trials and tribulations occur on earth. There are many timelines of these events, but the main features of this apocalypse is that there will be suffering and that Jesus will return. Mm -hmm. And in some traditions, the good Christians taken up in the rapture just get to chill out and watch the suffering from above. Super sadistic. Super cool, yeah. Party. It's important to note that this interpretation is not the belief of all Christians. Many biblical scholars would actually say that these literal interpretations are unbiblical because A, they are reading books written in code and metaphor literally. So a lot of these, um, this apocalyptic literature is uh, written in allegory and is using metaphor. Um, and when when these books are taken literally, then... Um, it's it's not how the book was intended to be read. And B, the scripture cited in these interpretations tend to be a collage of scripture made by kind of cutting and pasting from different parts of the Bible and using these passages outside of the, their historical and literary context. So we talked about this a bit in our last In the News episode. We talked about that. Um, yeah, which is just not how a lot of trained scholars of the Bible treat scripture. And C, two, the two most cited books are the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. So Daniel is written in the context of the Babylonian exile. And the book of Revelation was written when the Jews were being controlled by Rome. So both were written a long time ago. And so biblical scholars argue that these ends of the world that take place in these, these pieces of, of literature um, are about ends of empire rather than the end of life on earth and are in reference to ends of very specific empires and not like the American empire. Yeah, and also this idea of like a rapture theology is a relatively new theology. There's no rapture in the Bible, at least not as we know it from popular theology. That came from a vision an English woman had 200 years ago. Matthew chapter 24 does discuss an event where people are left behind, but in that context, it's actually the faithful that are left behind, like in the flood in Exodus. Some biblical scholars see this as a reference to a new heaven, new earth theology in which, like after the flood, the earth is renewed and that Jesus will return and heaven will come to earth. But honestly, this is all spoken about in parables and metaphors, so there's no clear framework for this in the Bible, which is why a lot of people prefer the literal version, because we know exactly what to expect. And anyway, there's a lot more we could say about it, but instead of going into more detail, we'll just give some book and article recommendations in the show notes for 
anybody who's interested in apocalypticism in the Bible. So why is this literal interpretation the most visible interpretation? Honestly, because the American Evangelical Church is really good at marketing and using technology for their agenda. If you're unaware, this is the tradition that makes the most appearances in the Christian movies you hear about and funds the Christian radio stations and programs. So the rapture narratives make for a good story. Its cut and paste use of scripture gives it the appearance of being quote-unquote biblical. So it's really marketable, it's scary and it's current, so people want to be in the know. If you grew up in the evangelical church, you've probably heard of something like the Left Behind series, which is a children's fiction series written about the rapture in the 90s and early 2000s. And this theology really sparks the imagination, especially within children, and it kind of gives you a certain anxiety that allows this sort of literature to be immensely popular. So evangelical leaders of this type of thinking, so uh, the rapture theology, often look to international politics to find evidence in current events. While some may look at these events with fear, some actually do what they can to speed up the end of the world as it is foretold by their narratives. So for example, while environmental groups have tended to use the apocalypse narrative to get people to act to change the world in positive ways, so like like your house is on fire, Uh, this is the only house you have, that sort of thing that um, inspires you to work to uh, help fix the environment. Some people of the rapture worldview will actually try to be anti-environmentalist or do things to speed up the destruction of the planet. So this literal apocalypse narrative has in turn influenced a lot of our media, including apocalyptic or dystopian books, films, and TV shows. But what is important to our discussion about the hundred are the questions around the nature of heaven, the nature of destruction and the restoration of the earth in these narratives and the treatment of others. So in the hundred, um, the grounders, but in the rapture narratives, um, the people that are left behind. In a way, the people in the ark are a part of the rapture narrative where they watch the destruction of the earth from above. But contrary to the common rapture narrative, the people on the Ark aren't happy to be up there. As the name of their spaceship suggests, their situation is more akin to the flood story in the book of Genesis, and they wish to return to the Earth as soon as they can. As we continue this discussion, and as you reflect on other apocalyptic and dystopian books or shows that you know, consider what and where is heaven in these stories, and who, if anyone, is left behind, and what does that mean ethically? And what role do destruction and restoration of the earth play in these stories? So in what ways do these stories shape your ideas around ethics or world events, either around environmentalism or the treatment of other people? I'm a big believer in the power of story, as well as the use of story as a mirror to better see ourselves individually and as a society. And I find dystopian stories to be particularly good at this because very often they're a critique on what society is right now. So when you use a story as a mirror, do you like what you see? Does it help you imagine a better world? Or is it a story best left behind or rewritten? As you may guess by us discussing The 100 in this episode, we think it is a story that adds fruitful insights to our perspectives, but perhaps you disagree. And if so, please let us know why you disagree and what your favorite apocalyptic or dystopian story is and why. We'd be excited to hear from you. Do you guys have a favorite apocalyptic or dystopian story? 
I mean, when I was a kid, I was more into this kind of stuff. So, like, I was a big fan of, like, the Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. Um, I would almost argue Harry Potter's got a little bit of apocalypticism mm. narrative in it. Um, except from, like, a defeat the apocalyptic narrative kind of so thing. So it's, like, pre-apocalyptic? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know, though. I think I... Um, I experience a lot of, like, eschatological dread on a daily basis, mm. and I don't like to sit and stew in it, <laughs> so That's fair. as an adult, I usually avoid this kind of stuff, but it, it does, it is interesting, you know? Yeah. See, I was kind of the opposite. When I was a teenager, I read a lot of dystopian fiction, uh, and I think partly that was because I was going through a lot of eschatological dread and, you know, normal teenager stuff. And it made me feel better about things. Yeah. Like, this isn't what's happening right now, so my life's not quite as bad as it could be. Yeah, it could be worse. (laughs) That's fair. Um, I'm trying to think. um, What's the... Okay, so after The Hunger Games, there came the... the, the Divergent. Did you you folks like Divergent? I do. It's on my shelf right here. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of my teenage books right behind me. (laughs) I really enjoyed the, like, thinking through the way in which, like, the different groups um, were established in Divergent of, like, oh, the world, like, bad things happen in the world because of all these different reasons. So, one, we weren't brave enough. One, we weren't, like, we didn't value knowledge enough. One, we weren't charitable enough. And the other, we weren't truthful enough. And so I, I appreciated just, like, the, like, thinking through those sorts of values and yeah yeah so for this episode we just wanted to give you a bit of an introduction to the show and even when our religion isn't mentioned in the show explicitly it often shows up implicitly in ways that are meaningful In The Hundred, this shows up through themes such as apocalypticism or as a way to construct identity and promote group cohesion, which we'll talk about in the next episode a little bit. Also, we see in The Hundred something rare in dystopian narratives, which is cool, which is an emphasis on the importance of nature. One of the questions we have is, Will this reverence for nature be a value that continues as the people of the Ark return to Earth? And is there an aspect of religion that you saw in season one that we missed? Or perhaps you'd like to share your all-time favorite dystopian show or novel? Let us know in the comments or by sending us an email at nearlynumerous at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. 